Good evening. This is Orson Welles introducing this festival of great films of the silent years. And we have, we have a great film tonight. It was made just a year after I was born. And there is almost nothing in the entire vocabulary of the cinema which you won't find in this film. There's also a lot of it which is terribly old-fashioned. And it was old-fashioned, I'd like to point out, even at the time when this film was shown. Because its author, and its author and maker and creator was D.W. Griffith, and I may say parenthetically that the film is intolerance, had his uh, grounding came out of and in every way was the child of the 19th century, the late 19th century theater. So you're going to see a lot of the late 19th century theater in this film. A lot that was old and dusty even at the moment that this was made. And you're also going to see an awful lot that would be new tomorrow because of the genius of the man his taste and his culture, his background, belong to quite another time. Hello and welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. Today we return to a film we first discussed back in episode four, D.W. Griffith's Intolerance from 1916. I won't completely rehash it, but it tells four parallel stories from different points in history, each dealing somehow with the fallout from intolerance of some kind. We saw the fall of Babylon in 539 BCE and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, which I believe I mentioned in conjunction with the last temptation of Christ. Today we're talking about the segments of intolerance set in Paris in 1572. The title cards tell us that Paris is a hotbed of intolerance. We see Catherine de' Medici and her son Charles IX, King of France. Catherine is intolerant of the Huguenots, the Protestants. We meet Admiral Coligny, a leader of the Huguenot Party. Catherine likes him, but hates his religion, and he feels the same about her. The king's sister, Marguerite of Valois, is engaged to Henry of Navarre, a Huguenot. The idea here is to make a big royal match to help heal the rift between the Catholics and the Huguenots. We also meet a common girl simply named Brown Eyes. If, if you remember, this film had a problem with naming its female protagonists. We had Dear One in one storyline and Mountain Girl in another storyline. After Brown Eyes' boyfriend leaves her place, a soldier grabs her and hopes to make her his, and she fights him off for now. The Catholics in Paris are calling the Huguenots violent and a threat to them. They bring up the incident in Michelade at Nimes, where Huguenots killed hundreds of Catholics, and this did happen. After a failed attempt to kidnap the king and the royal family in 1567, so five years before the events in this film, Huguenots killed more than 80 people at Nimes. So, probably not hundreds, as the character in Intolerance claims. It also doesn't seem to have been a premeditated event, Tensions were just really, really high at this point in French history, and it took very little for things to escalate to violence. Despite seeing her at the beginning of the film talking civilly to Collini, we see Catherine finally getting her son to sign off on the order for the Massacre of St. Bartholomew. He refuses at first, but 
They convince them it's vital for their safety. Catholics go around marking the houses of Huguenots with chalk on St. Bartholomew's Day Eve. When the bell of St. Germain sounds on St. Bartholomew's Day, the massacre begins. Brown Eye's house is one of those targeted. The soldier who liked her from earlier sees the chaos of this citywide massacre as an opportunity to rape Brown Eyes. He fails but kills her in the struggle. Again, I discussed it last year, but only one of the four storylines in Intolerance gets a happy ending. This is not one of them. The first three chronologically end in death. And that's basically it as far as how much the movie covers. That's you know, they they talk about hey, Catholics and Protestants aren't getting along. Queen orders a massacre, massacre ensues. So I know that was super quick in a simple story, but it is just one of four plots in an old silent film, granted a three-hour silent film. So this may end up being a really short episode, but there is more for us to explore with so many historical figures being introduced in this film, even though the film didn't have much for them to do. Basically, this entire event obviously stems from the Protestant Reformation. In 1439, we got the printing press allowing access to books to those who never would have had them otherwise, so literacy rates gradually increased. The Renaissance is well underway as well. In 1517, just five years after Michelangelo finished the Sistine Chapel, Martin Luther posted his 95 theses and gradually argues more and more against the practices of the Catholic Church. This Protestant fire spreads across Europe. John Calvin leaves the Catholic Church in 1530 and later flees to Switzerland. Henry VIII of England declares himself the head of the church in England in 1534. And basically what you have for the first time, at least significantly, since the beginnings of the church are common people debating and questioning their faith. By the early 1570s, about 10% of the population of France was Huguenot. This is simply the name for members of the Reformed Church of France, Calvinists who, while they saw the problems with the church that Luther did, had their own ideas on how to be Christian. As their numbers and prominence grew, the Catholics in France became more and more hostile toward them. So let's meet Gaspard de Coligny, who was introduced at the very beginning of the film. He was born into a noble family from the Burgundy region in France, southeast of Paris. He was a prominent soldier for France who became a fierce Protestant supporter and Huguenot, even receiving letters from John Calvin himself. Basically, Calvin stayed away safely in Switzerland, but through his writings, he was a major intellectual player during the Reformations. Coligny was secretly trying to set up colonies overseas for his fellow Huguenots to settle in and live peacefully. A French colony was even established in Brazil in 1555, but they were booted out a decade later by the Portuguese. By the time of the death of the French king, Henry II, in 1559, Coligny was one of the primary advocates for the Huguenots demanding reforms to formally protect their rights within France. In 1562, an on-and-off period of civil war called the French Wars of Religion began. But before we go on there, it's time to meet Catherine de' Medici. She was the great-granddaughter of Lorenzo the Magnificent of Florence, who I mentioned last month was a patron of Michelangelo. When she was 14, she married the also 14-year-old crown prince of France, Henry, who ascended to become Henry II. The couple had 10 children, of whom 7 survived to adulthood. I mentioned Henry died in 1559. Well, in the subsequent 30 years, Catherine had enormous power in France. Three of her sons ruled in succession, but none of them were particularly strong rulers. First was the unhealthy 15-year-old Francis II, who died after just a year and a half on the throne. 
He was followed by Charles IX, who was just 10 when he inherited the throne from his brother. His mother was officially regent for the first few years of his reign and continued to have extensive influence over her son. Catherine seemed to never really understand the Protestant movement, but she initially advised placating them. But her frustration with them grew as it did with Catholics throughout the country. In August of 1570, a peace treaty was signed between the two sides. Charles IX signed on behalf of the Catholics, and Coligny signed on behalf of the Huguenots. One of the chief negotiators was Jean d'Albret, the Queen of Navarre. Navarre was an independent kingdom on the border of France and Spain. It's now part of Spain. Its capital city is Pamplona, where the running of the bulls takes place today. Anyway, as an additional part of the treaty, a marriage was arranged between the daughter of Catherine de' Medici, Margaret of Valois, the sister of Charles IX, and Dalbert's son, Henry of Navarre. And these were all the characters we met at the beginning of Intolerance. So, basically, now that you have the backstory, I want to get into the details of the massacre itself. Following the treaty, Coligny was able to return to court and quickly became a friend and advisor of King Charles IX, much to the chagrin of his mother. Hence the polite coldness we saw between them in the beginning of the film. Emboldened by the treaty and the wedding, Huguenots flocked to Paris in August of 1572 for the celebration, but tensions were still high. The Pope and many traditional Catholics did not accept this marriage. It also didn't help that food prices had recently gone up following a bad harvest, yet no expense was being spared for this royal wedding. The wedding was on August 18th and was apparently uneventful enough, but four days later there was an attempted assassination of Coligny. He survived, but bullets ripped a finger off of his right hand and shattered his left elbow. To this day, it's unknown if the would-be assassin acted alone or was hired by important people. King Charles visited Coligny during his recovery and even sent his own doctor to treat him. Catholics in the city were fearful of a retaliation. Everything then just happened quickly, though. Just a day after the attempt on Coligny's life and despite the king's show of support for his friend... Charles signed off on the plan to kill Protestant leaders, including Coligny. The popular story is that the signal was the ringing of the bells of the Church of St. Germain, as mentioned in the movie, and this is on the eve of St. Bartholomew's Day. Coligny was dragged from his bed, killed, and thrown out a window. The massacre was on. From a coordinated attack on Huguenot leaders by the king's Swiss guard, it became a mob of commoners killing any Huguenots they could find. Despite the king's attempt to reign in the carnage, the killing lasted for three days in Paris and even longer in other parts of the country. Even in October, Huguenots were being killed in other cities throughout France. It took on all different forms. In some cities, it was carried out by soldiers. In others, it was mob-led. They all easily pretended they were carrying out orders from the crown. This led to mass conversions to Catholicism. People would rather live than stick to their new Protestantism. Just a few days after the initial massacre in Paris, Charles officially declared it was done on his order to protect threats against the crown. Henry of Navarre, the king's new brother-in-law, was spared by converting to Catholicism, but as soon as he was safely away from the city, he renounced his conversion. Official death counts are impossible to calculate and range from 5,000 to 30,000 killed across all of France. Pope Gregory XIII, yes, the same Gregory whose calendar we use today, initially called the massacre an act of divine retribution, and it was believed that Coligny was a threat to Christendom itself. As details of the chaotic nature of the events uh, came out, though, the church distanced itself officially from celebrating it, and I guess even Ivan the Terrible at the time wrote a letter about how awful the incident was. 
The Alexander Dumas novel, Queen Margot, deals with this same event, and Queen Margot is a nickname for Margaret or Marguerite of Valois. I read it 13 years ago, so I really don't have much more insight to offer there. It does cast Catherine de Medici as the villain plotting the massacre. And again, she was incredibly powerful. The reigns of her three sons have been called the age of Catherine de Medici in France. Two years after the massacre, King Charles died of tuberculosis and was succeeded by his brother Henry III. Henry III was 22, but still relied much on his mother's counsel, though perhaps not as much as his brother's. He was assassinated 15 years later by a Catholic who likely thought the king wasn't doing enough to quell the Huguenots. Indeed, even the Pope praised the assassin, and the idea of making him a saint was discussed. Catherine had died less than a year before her son, and none of her sons had sons of their own. So amidst these French wars of religion, the Protestant Henry of Navarre, Margaret's husband, the couple married days before the massacre, became King Henry IV of France and the first king of the House of Bourbon. And this wasn't because his wife was a sister of the previous three kings, though that helps. Uh, this Henry himself was a distant descendant of the French king Louis IX from 300 years earlier. After four years on the throne, he ultimately converted to Catholicism again to actually begin to have some control over the majority Catholic country. But now basically everyone hated him. The Catholics considered him a usurper still, and the Protestants felt he was a traitor now. Like his predecessor, he was assassinated as well in 1610, and retroactively remembered, however, as Good King Henry for being an overall nice guy who was legitimately concerned for the welfare of the French people. He was succeeded by his son, Louis XIII, who we'll get to next month when discussing the Three Musketeers. So, I got a little beyond the timeline of our movie there, but I wanted to follow through on the characters we met. And I'll get into our elsewheres in the world at this time next week as our next tale takes place at the same time as this one. Henry III will make a cameo as we head to Venice where we'll dive into the decadent life of a real-life courtesan in 1998's Dangerous Beauty. Dangerous Beauty.